This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. Okay, the internet has made the world a much, much more efficient place. It's dropped costs, it's increased reach, it's you know, almost positives across the board. The blockchain will probably have a more significant effect on the world than the internet did. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by our friends at Libro FM. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher at home in Tacoma, Washington, in the gorgeous Moonyard Studios. Everyone, it is good to see you. We are back for another episode. Uh, today's conversation is grounded in kind of three epiphanies that I've been having uh, all at the same time about different topics, and they kind of come to a head in this conversation. So thing one is, is I, recently, I recently read a book by John Bogle called The Common Sense Guide to Investing. And Bogle is the founder of Vanguard, and he basically talks about simplifying your investment portfolio and the idea that like most people can beat the market in a given year but won't beat the market every year. So instead of trying to beat the market, you should buy index funds. And essentially one of his points is, is that a lot of folks don't understand the things they own. And so if you buy index funds, you're buying the whole market. It's simple. Epiphany number two is, in some online conversations, I'm realizing that cryptocurrency and blockchain uh, are taking a real foothold in the black community. And arguably, I think that cryptocurrency is kind of like firearms with libertarians. So libertarians are always talking about crypto and blockchain. They're always talking about guns. Black folks don't talk about it that much, but I think a lot of us have guns. I do. And a lot of us have crypto. I do. And so those two things are kind of floating in my head. At the same time, I just returned from UAE and like in my wallet, I have different currencies. And like as of late, I've been really thinking about the idea of currency. Like I have this Dirham, 100 Dirham note in my wallet right now that back in UAE buys me $27 worth of stuff. It buys me nothing here in, here in Tacoma. At the same time, I have a couple hundred dollars in like $20 bills and don't ask why uh, that are really valuable here in the US, uh, but are also valuable elsewhere. And so like this idea that like one currency is made up to the black communities into cryptos uh, more than I think we're letting on. And then compounded by the idea that like <sighs> people's investments are oftentimes more complicated than they actually understand. I, I wanted to talk to an expert on this and kind of help center my understanding. And so I'm joined today by Reggie Middleton. Uh, Reggie is a... He's, a, he's an established figure in the blockchain and crypto community. And what I'm going to ask him to help me with today is, is I'm going to intentionally start this conversation kind of below my level understanding and then kind of talk through above my head understanding. And then hopefully you learn along with me. So, Reggie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, Reggie, could you just help, help me and help the audience kind of introduce yourself? Uh, what's your background and current work in either finance or in cryptocurrencies? Uh, I'll give you a quick... Uh medium quick synopsis of what I've done and then I'll let you ascertain whether you feel it's a background or not. Sure. Um, graduate of Howard University, a bachelor's degree. I spent about nine months in corporate America um, as an adult and that was it. From then on, I was uh, an entrepreneur, self-employed. 
various degrees of successes and failures, but learned along the way. Um, uh, in 2000 and roughly about 2000, I started buying real estate in uh, New York, uh, area downtown Brooklyn, uh, for a green area. That's an area that underwent um, massive gentrification, um, very proximal to Manhattan, and during a time when credit markets were very loose. So those are three very bullish um, scenarios that combined to um, give significant results, the upside. Of course, um, the economy and market got carried away, and it went from uh, a bullish real estate scenario to a raging bubble, to a joke. Um, I'm very analytical. So uh, ran the numbers and two plus two sort of the equal 114. I'm not good <laughs> in math, but I'm better than that. So I sold everything off and wanted to create a hedge fund uh, that access that extreme leverage to basically short anybody who did business with me, whether you're a bank, broker, insurance company, um, real estate company, developer, et cetera. Um, so I went through the rigmarole of forming a hedge fund, but I was uh, very unique to the hedge fund space. I didn't look like your typical hedge fund guy, I didn't um, talk like I went to the wrong school, et cetera. And, and at the same time, the um, hedge fund space was running into the reason why I sold off the real estate in the first place. Uh, a bubble was popping. And so they were getting massive redemptions because people want to liquefy um, or sell off any gains they had in their hedge fund holdings to pay for the holes formed by the condos in Miami, et cetera. Um, so I timed the real estate crash perfectly. I sold off roughly about six months before the bottom fell out in New York. Um, so the hedge fund didn't work out, but in um, adjacent to the hedge fund idea was to build up my credibility um, in the marketplace since not many hedge um, funders were coming from a historically black college, university, um, self-employed, et cetera. So I created a blog. I started commenting on New York Rubini's blog. Um, and then started my own um, due to popular demand. But uh, people from all over the world were very belligerent and asking me for my opinion, you know, <laughs> contacting me two in the morning, et cetera. So I got everybody to be quiet by putting a paywall up. And then Morgan Stanley called and asked if um, they could turn on three of their prop traders for $25,000. I put a smile on my face. I said, of course. Now my analytic team was a revenue source versus an expense. Um, that blog predicted the collapse of Bear Stearns, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the collapse of the second largest REIT in the country, the sovereign debt crisis, the collapse of Ireland, Portugal, et cetera, about 86 calls. So fundamental analysis, finance, investments, I have a very, very strong proven track record. Um, I used to win the CNBC investment contest multiple years in a row. And then I got caught in the Bitcoin bug and I dropped everything and went into crypto. That was... 2013, June 2013. And here we are nearly a decade later. So much of that biography is familiar to me, but other parts of it aren't. And I want to tug on a couple of things. Uh, as a black man working in finance and somebody who was basically shorting Wall Street, uh, what was the response of people like because if I had the experience that you had, I would walk around saying, I told you so for the rest of my existence. And so what have what has your interaction been with the banks and with Wall Street uh, based on your record? Uh, well, um, at the time, bloggers weren't taken seriously. Sure. Um, 
And you have a lot of groupthink in Wall Street. If you look at Wall Street, um, a lot of people, at least if you're from New York, it, every major metropolitan area has an industry that basically powers that area and pays all the commercial taxes, et cetera. In New York, which is probably the largest and most diverse metropolitan area, it's finance, mm. it's marketing, and it's fashion, okay, and media. So everybody, most of the, many of the high net worth people in New York are from Wall Street, but, and they're thought of as demigods. You know, you have to be very smart to be a trader or a banker, et cetera. You have to be good at investment, but that's a myth. You know, basically you're either good at sales or you're good at analytics, but you're analyzing very specific things. So most investment bankers are horrible at investment. Most investment advisors are advising other wealthy people and they get their money from taking money from wealthy people, mm-hmm. not from making it themselves. So with that in mind, most of my ideas are called contrarian. It goes against the grain. Okay. And I challenge all Wall Street to prove me wrong oftentimes they can't because there's no diversity. I don't mean just no racial diversity. There's sure. no diversity at all. You go to any major bank on Wall Street, they all went to the same schools. They studied under the same professors, studied the same course material. They graduated with the same degrees. They start with the same training programs, building the same products. They leave one bank to go to another bank doing the exact same thing in the same departments, same business, et cetera. You know, so that, that um, uh, homogeneity, that lack of diversity creates very um, powerful strengths along certain lines, but a plethora of weaknesses. So I have a lot of people saying, you don't know what you're doing. You're just a blogger, et cetera, et cetera. Three to four months later, they're contacting me at two or three in the morning. And can you show me that the analytics behind Bear Stearns being um, insolvent? Do you really think they're going to file bankruptcy, et cetera? So I got a lot of pushback, but there is a minority of thinkers who do appreciate it. And then, of course, when the brown stinky stuff hits the flam blades and splatters everywhere, then everybody gives you uh, or many people give you the credit that they would have given you if they just had open eyes. So that's it in a nutshell. I appreciate that a lot. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this. And so obligatory, like, disclaimer, this is not investment advice. I'm not an investment advisor. Um, we, you talked about how you foresaw the housing collapse in 2008. We're sitting in a period right now where there's been a market run up and like the market basically saying all time highs kind of week after week. Um, what are your thoughts on the market at the moment? It's, it's a bubble. It's a ridiculous bubble. You know, the easiest way to find out when you have an asset bubble is to look at the increase in asset prices and compare it to the increase in incomes. Mm. Okay, when asset price growth right, outstrips, outstrips growth in income significantly, you're going to have a problem. Why? Because somebody has to buy those assets. Okay, right now you have a, a video game of assets being pinged back and forth between institutional players. And they're going up higher and higher and higher. The reason is because the Federal Reserve is printing money at a historically unprecedented rate, truly unprecedented. That's um, fiscal policy and on a a monetary policy. And on the fiscal side, you have the government who's also doing the same. They're giving out money through basically social welfare to companies, to corporations, to individuals. Unemployment um, has been skewed to the upside. So has... uh, Safety, social safety nets, safety nets for small businesses, safety nets for big businesses. So when you dump all that fuel on a fire, you're going to get a bigger fire. Okay. 
that doesn't mean the sun is any larger today than it was yesterday. That means you're going to burn up through all that fuel and you're going to have consequences. So you have a risky asset bubble. Usually we have an asset bubble. You have one asset bubble and that asset bubble pulls capital from other asset classes until it pops and then it redistributes. So when you have a big stock market bubble, it will pull money out of the bond markets and out of you know, real estate markets, et cetera. You have a big real estate market bubble. It pulls money out of the stock market. Now we have what I call the everything bubble. Everything risky is going up. Real estate is on fire. Stocks are on fire. Private equity is on fire. Bonds are on fire. You have negative real yields. The real means the yield minus the inflation rate. And inflation is on fire. Theoretically, when inflation is on fire, then it's supposed to pull everything else down because the cost of doing business is higher. The cost of running buildings are higher. When everything goes up, it's unsustainable. It's like magic. It's like throwing a ball in the air. And instead of coming down, it just goes higher and higher and higher and higher. So do you remember the last time that happened when you threw a ball? Uh, let's see. Last time I threw a ball was probably right before I left Abu Dhabi. It's like a month ago. Yeah. Okay. So did it keep going higher, higher, higher? Or did it come back to the ground? It definitely came back to the ground. And so are those asset prices. It's just that simple. Bet. Okay. So this converse, I'm, I'm fascinated by all of this. I, I want to pivot to the crypto conversation a bit. Um, I'm wondering, could you explain what a blockchain is and its utility in a way that somebody who has no background in this whatsoever would understand? A blockchain is a database that um, keeps track of transactions like any other database. Um, that's it in its simplest form. What I'm leaving out is the parts of that database that make it unique to every other database. And usually in a distributed database, like the database for the block for Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain, is it has solved what is known as the Byzantine General's problem. So the Byzantine General's problems, instead of going through a long explanation, um, I'll try and simplify it. Back when you had the Byzantine Empire and they attempted to be imperialistic and destroy um, conquer. Um, many other civilizations, they had a dilemma where they would come and attack uh, a, a warring party and they split into two. So one general is on one side of a mountain, there were other generals on the other side of a mountain. And the key is to go and um, attack the enemy simultaneously on the far side. But one general, especially back in, say, 13 and 1600s, didn't know when the other general will go and attack. Mm. So they had to take a guess. Okay. And that dilemma is very difficult to solve because basically you don't know, you know, if the general attacked, if the general didn't attack. That's a dilemma. That's the problem. That problem occurs in today's society, particularly after the dawn of the internet. Um, you have an unknown. So if you have internet money, electronic money, you can use it, you can spend it, on Amazon, okay? And you can buy a pair of uh, speakers on Amazon. But since that money is so easily replicated, you just hit copy and paste for that file. How do you tell after you spent the money on Amazon and got the speakers, how can you tell that you didn't take that same amount of money or that same electronic dollar and send it to eBay for the same thing or Best Buy? You don't know. The only way to know is if eBay and Best Buy and everybody else use the same database. If they did, that would be a massive database and they would all have to trust each other, which they don't because they're competitors. So that dilemma, which is a Byzantine general's dilemma, has plagued electronic currency 
um, electronic transactions um, since the dawn of the internet and since the dawn of basically having two or more parties who don't know or trust each other. So what the Bitcoin blockchain has done, right, has solved that problem by allowing a party to do a transaction electronically with a transfer of value without knowing or trusting the other party. So now when you send your value, let's say it's a Bitcoin or a digital dollar into Amazon to purchase a speaker, right? That blockchain um, labels it as spent. So if you try to do it even at the exact same time, you tried to purchase speakers in eBay or Best Buy, you won't be able to do it because it would be, would be labeled as spent in uh, Amazon. That is a sea change in how business is done. So now you can take advantage of the internet and have a marketplace that covers the whole world, and you have basically unaccountable money. That makes that money through the Bitcoin blockchain theoretically more valuable than any dollar, any euro, or anything else in the world because it can't be counterfeited. A, it has an automatic audit trail, so you can see what happens. B, and it has its own transportation rail, so you don't need American Express, you don't need MoneyGram, you don't need Citibank or JP Morgan. The money itself has its own transportation rails. So phenomenal, phenomenal invention. And that's what makes the blockchain different and better for its particular uses, at least, than a regular database built on Microsoft, IBM, et cetera, or technologies for Microsoft, IBM, et cetera. Earlier on, you talked about how you feel like we're in an asset bubble. I note that the price of Bitcoin has gone from like $6,000 a year ago, a year ago uh, 10x to like $64,000, and then it fell about 25% to $40,000, and I thought was a good time to buy, and then it fell down to $35,000, and I'm mad at myself right now. Uh, but given that, what do you think is the ultimate price direction of Bitcoin? Uh, if I had to take a guess right now, it would be up, but... Um, to be absolutely honest, having a discussion of Bitcoin would <clears throat> would cloud the discussion of you know blockchain technology. Mm. You know, Bitcoin is a non-issue now. The reason why Bitcoin is discussed so much is because of the power and ignorance of the media and the um, participation of Wall Street. Remember, I told you many Wall Street participants are not nearly as smart as everybody thinks they are. Okay. They're latching on to Bitcoin because Bitcoin is an opportunity to gain asset management fees um, and commission fees and spreads. That's what makes Bitcoin attractive to them. Um, most of Wall Street has no idea what Bitcoin is, right? They think Bitcoin is a currency, a digital currency. It's not. Right now, Bitcoin is a pure speculation vehicle. Now, Bitcoin at birth, right, was an internet currency that had its own database, blockchain, and transportation rails. Bitcoin at birth was uh, as significant a phenomenon as the internet, okay? But Bitcoin has lost its way because now people are speculating more on the application that was built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, which is a digital currency, right? And they're speculating on it for price gains versus utility. So um, I'm not the only one who felt that way. There's a group. Um, of people from Canada and from Brooklyn and other places who also had that mindset. And they petitioned the Bitcoin Association to make changes in Bitcoin, to put a more powerful scripting language in, to increase throughput, transaction throughput, et cetera. They were rebuffed by the Bitcoin Association. So they created their own currency, 
um, sorry, their own blockchain and platform. And that's called Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ethereum now is what Bitcoin was intended to be. Okay. Um, and from a utilitarian perspective, it outstrips Bitcoin significantly. Now, Ethereum has plenty of competitors and everybody has their pluses and minuses, pros and cons. But one thing most of them have in common is that they are technically superior to Bitcoin, except for the fact that Bitcoin has much more participation in the hash power, hash rate, and computational power. So it's more secure in that um, aspect. And it's popularized. You know, Wall Street is in the Bitcoin. The media is in the Bitcoin. But it's not Bitcoin that you should be looking at. It's the crypto technology in general. That's what's changing the world. That's where almost all the investment is going. That's where almost all the capital is flowing. So, you know, we could discuss Bitcoin, but that's like discussing IP packets um, instead of talking about the internet. Sure, sure, sure. So so let's make a pivot then. Um, you are saying that essentially a lot of the media attention around Bitcoin is attention around drama and that really the idea is this idea of DeFi. So for the benefit of the audience, what is DeFi and why is it different than uh, anything else we've seen financially? DeFi is a term, um, and I, I'm pretty sure I coined that term. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tell myself as the inventor and creator of DeFi. DeFi is short for decentralized finance or distributed finance. Um, and it is, uh, I came up with the idea in 2013. Um, I discovered Bitcoin in June 2013, um, and I think I coined and discovered DeFi right about October of 2013. Um, launched the first app publicly, and you know, we settled the first swap in December 2013, and I made it public for viewing it for use in January 2014. We filed patent applications in April and May of 2014. And right about that time, I made the um, first DeFi app that I know of public for beta testing um, right about mid-2014. And what DeFi is, is decentralized or distributed finance. What makes that different, both in concept and how I um, intended for it to be, was to be something that's safer and more flexible than traditional finance, which is centralized. So... You have a bank account. You bank at Citibank, okay? You put most of your money in Citibank in the bank account. Um, Citibank issues you an IOU in return, okay? And there's a lot of misconceptions that I'm going to try and clear up. Sure. A lot of people think when you put money in a bank, you have money in a bank. No, you don't. You gave that bank your money. You gave them a short-term unsecured loan, and they gave you IOUs in um, exchange for that, which you could cash those IOUs in. And assuming the bank will pay you back, they will give you currency in return. That's what a checking account is, a demand account, a demand deposit account. And it's called that because you can demand return of your money or your IOU to be cashed in upon demand um, and a CD and most other products. But it is centralized. So that one entity uh, is where all your stuff is kept. They have full control over it. You have no control over it. They have custody. They have ownership. And uh, they have control, and you have neither. In a decentralized finance um, situation, you maintain custody, right? You maintain ownership, you maintain control of your assets at all times, unless you are to go through a transaction. And even then, those transactions are usually going through what is called a smart contract, which is computer code that executes according to 
uh, predetermined uh, criteria. That could be a swap where I give you money according to the price of IBM and I get a value in return um, locked to the price of a US dollar. Okay, you could consider buying coffee at Starbucks a swap. You give a lot, yeah, add $5 US dollars in and you get a 34 cent value cup of coffee in return. Okay, that's a joke because, you know, I think the margins of Starbucks are high, but um, <laughs> that is a swap. So if you think of a swap as exchanging value, then potentially any transaction is a swap, even when there's no money involved. You know, a voting uh, a voting booth can be considered a facilitator for a swap. Um, intellectual property, patents, legal um, debates, legal settlements, you know, viatical trusts, wills, etc. Okay, value. Value is not necessarily currency. It's not even necessarily money. It's something that is of value to you or somebody else. So um, our patent that was filed in 2014 worldwide was basically using blockchain technology to facilitate the swapping of value. But to do it on a zero or low trust basis, mean, meaning you can swap this value. I send value to you and you send value to me and I don't have to know you. I don't have to like you. I don't have to trust you. Um, but yet, we can guarantee that that transaction will occur as previously agreed. So that is what I consider an invention, and that's what we filed for. Up until that point, um, that was not possible. And what made it possible is the um, blockchain, the decentralized blockchain that solved the Byzantine General's dilemma. Hmm. So I want to say- I know I can get wordy. No, 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 no. Let me answer your question, or if you want me to continue. No, I signed up for this. This is this is this is a class. I'm here for this. I want to charge tuition. Uh, okay. <laughs> we'll take a break here, and when we come back, I want to talk about Ethereum a bit more. And you mentioned smart contracts. I want to talk about the utility of that as well. So we'll be back. This episode of the Nerd Farmer Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm is a seller of audiobooks and is my choice, uh, my bookseller of choice. What I love about Libro is, is if you buy a book from Libro, uh, you can share a portion of the proceeds with, with your local bookstore. And so, for example, when I buy a book, it benefits King's Books in Tacoma. Um, I want to share a few of the topics and a few of the titles I listened to recently, and maybe you might want to check them out. Uh, the first one is a book called Sky Hunter by Marie Lu. Marie Lu is a young adult sci-fi writer. I first fell in love with her writing when she wrote the Young Elites trilogy. Uh, the bumper sticker on the Young Elites is, is imagine the X-Men being created during the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, sounds dope. Uh, the next one I want to recommend is called 400 Souls. It's a collection of essays that is edited by Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, essentially, each one of these essays in the book is telling the story of Black America one year at a time. And so it starts with 1619 and then walks through the history of Black America uh, and some of the some of the, the, the things that black Americans have, had, Americans have had to overcome. It's frankly a sobering book and a dark book. Uh, there are a couple times where like, I was like, I'm, I can't mess with this right now. I had to, wa had to walk away from it. But like, that's also the history of black America. Uh, the last book I want to recommend today is called Chlorine Sky. It's written by a writer named Mahogany L. Brown. And essentially, it is a book written in verse that tells the story of a young woman who basically is in love with hip-hop and basketball. If you've ever read the book uh, by Sandra Cisneros, uh, The House on Mango Street, imagine The House on Mango Street updated for today and centered on hip-hop culture. So if any of those sound great to you, go to LibroFM.com. 
If you sign up for an account and use promo code Tacoma, you will get one free book, your first book free, and then your ongoing membership will be $14.99 a month. Again, Libro FM using promo code Tacoma. All right, back to the show. And we are back. Thank you so much for downloading the show today. Uh, your listenership and your sharing of the show makes it possible and makes it worth the work. If you enjoy what you're hearing in this conversation, and I'm enjoying having this conversation, I'm going to ask you to consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Channel 253 is a network of podcasts, elevating voices, story and, stories, and points of view you won't get elsewhere. You're not going to find an hour-long conversation about cryptocurrency and blockchain uh, in many other communities here locally. And so if this is important to you, you appreciate it, consider joining as a member. You can go to channel253.com slash membership. It is $4 a month or $40 a year. And if you go to and become a member on our member Slack, there's a channel that basically is aligned to this conversation called Stonks and Money. And you can see there uh, all the money we've made and lost on cryptos over the last few months. So channel253.com slash membership, $4 a month, $40 a year. Uh, Reggie, let's continue the lesson. And this isn't a podcast anymore. It's a lesson. During the... Uh, Oh, go ahead. I appreciate that. So during the break, I essentialized something, and I think I essentialized it incorrectly. So I want to I want to run my my mistaken understanding by you, and then have you tell me where I'm wrong. Okay. I said that based on your understanding at this point, that Bitcoin is now a speculative commodity similar to gold and copper back in the day, and that Ethereum is now like a cryptocurrency actually used for exchange. And you said I don't quite have it right. So tell me where I'm wrong there. Okay, uh, let's just take it one step at a time. So you're comparing Bitcoin, Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoin to gold and copper back in the days. Okay, so back in the days, the majority of copper's price, if you were to break down the composition of the price, eighty to ninety-five percent of it is utility value. People use copper to build pipes for electricity, uh, electrical um, conduct, electricity kind. Con- Conductive electricity um, tools, such as wires and connectors, uh, and a variety of other things, okay? Gold was used for hyperconductivity, for jewelry, and as a uh, unit of account, money, hard money, okay? So the utility value made up most of copper was some speculative um, aspect, and that's pretty much it. With gold, you had some utility value, right? And that utility value over time um, might have increased as science allowed gold's use to be um, explored further. But gold's primary purpose over the last several hundred years has been a store of value, a unit of account, a hard unit of account, because gold um, does not debase itself like fiat currencies do, government currencies, because all governments run their economies basically by devaluing the currencies to create fake false growth. Okay, that's how gold and copper are priced in value, if, if you would do it forensically. Bitcoin started as pure utilitarian value. Before it had any market price, um, it was a concept, but it was a concept that worked. Internet money solving the Byzantine generalist dilemma, which we went through earlier. Fantastic idea, fantastic invention. Whoever Satoshi is, whether it's an individual or a group of individuals or a group of corporations, absolute genius, Okay. It's been bastardized, okay? Wall Street got a hold of it, the market, the media's got a hold of it, and they've transformed it into something that it wasn't intended by its creator to be. So now um, Bitcoin is maybe 10% utility value, okay? 
and a 90% speculative uh, asset. Okay, and that's Bitcoin itself. Bitcoin is should be bifurcated. It's two things. It is a blockchain, right? A decentralized, uh, permissionless blockchain, meaning everybody can participate in it. You don't have to sign up to it. You don't have to get permission from a company or the government. Everybody can get into it. And on top of that, blockchain, a permissionless blockchain, which we should equate to an operating system like Windows or like Mac OS or like Android. So on top of that operating system type blockchain, an application was written. The first application for Bitcoin is Bitcoin. So think of Bitcoin, the operating system, the blockchain, think of it as a capital B. And then the application written on top of Bitcoin, think of it as a lowercase b. That's the digital currency. Okay. Almost everybody in the media, almost most of the Wall Street pundits, they conflate and combine and confuse the capital, the capital B Bitcoin and lowercase Bitcoin. Bitcoin. As a matter of fact, most of them don't think there is a difference. Okay. And so that understanding um, and the need to maximize commissions, maximize um, impressions, maximize ad revenue, maximize spreads, maximize asset management fees, you know, cause the difference to shrink and shrink and shrink till there is no difference. And the developers of Bitcoin haven't been pushing an envelope. Okay. That's why Bitcoin was 100% utility. And then it faded, and over time, it's now 10%, or even less in terms of utility, mostly speculative uh, um, spec, uh, speculative asset. Now we mentioned Ethereum. Ethereum started by, in 2013, circa 2013, 2014, um, I wasn't the only one who thought that Bitcoin was losing its way. Um, so a very, very, you know, intelligent Youth. He was 17, 18 at the time from Canada, um, teamed up with a dude from Brooklyn who was also Canadian and a couple of other people. And they came up with the idea of um, extending Bitcoin by giving it a more powerful scripting, a programming language, um, increasing throughput, transactions per second, etc. They suggested it to the Bitcoin uh, Association. That's the not-for-profit group that you know runs Bitcoin, for lack of a better term. They were rejected, and then they formed their own Bitcoin competitor called Ethereum. Ethereum started out just like Bitcoin. It basically um, uses the Byzantine general dilemma solution that the Bitcoin blockchain introduced, but they added um, a more powerful programming language and a couple other changes. So they created basically a better Bitcoin, or more accurately, they created what the original Satoshi Nakamoto, the um, fictitious name, of the inventor of Bitcoin, I believe they extended and created what Satoshi had in mind. Hmm. Okay. Now, what Ethereum is, is an operating system, basically, with a bunch of applications written on top of it. And those applications have to pay a fee to use that operating system. That fee is called an F. And that F is the currency, the digital currency. Just like the fee to use the capital B, Bitcoin, the blockchain, the fee to use that is a lowercase b, Bitcoin. So you have to pay Bitcoins to use Bitcoin as a fee. Okay. That is not really that complicated, I think. But instead of going through the explanation, a lot of people just say digital currency. When you say that, you you know, you know see um, the tree bark, but you don't realize that there's a forest there. Mm-hmm. 
So I am aware, and you've made it clear online and in this conversation, that you have some early patents on the idea of decentralized finance and DeFi. We're talking about Ethereum, and Vitalik Buterin is being credited as like the – he is credited as as, as the creator of Ethereum. And so am I to understand from the unstated context in this conversation that Buterin basically leveraged your patents to create this other blockchain? No, I don't believe so. I believe he created it. He's a smart kid. He leveraged Bitcoin okay. to create the other blockchain, okay. but not my patents. Okay. Um, I don't know, actually, because I don't know um, Vitalik personally, but I don't believe he did it. Um, and it's also irrelevant. You know, it's, it's business. Uh, so whether he did or not is irrelevant, but I don't believe he did. Okay. The patents predate the idea. My concept of DeFi predates Ethereum. So I created um, peer-to-peer transactions and software. You could look at my YouTube channel. You can see them running. Um, you can ask on the internet. There are many people who better taste the app. And they've used, they did peer-to-peer decentralized finance swaps before Ethereum was created. If you take a look at the patent filing, the patents filed in May 2014 around the world. The patents predate the existence of Ethereum. So, um, you know, it's undisputed which came first. But it's not so much a competition. And Ethereum is an operating system. Mm-hmm. What I patented was the method of creating an application, all right, a device, a system, or a method of conducting decentralized finance. So I didn't patent the operating system. I didn't patent the blockchain or a database. I patented a way of using that database to basically eliminate middlemen throughout the world. Where, if anywhere, are we seeing the ideas in your patents being uh, implemented and carried out with the most effectiveness and the most fidelity? Nowhere yet. Um, The original applications that I built um, would have qualified for that. Um, I did peer-to-peer swaps in 2013 and 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, Compare that to the most popular DeFi applications, which will probably be Uniswap, and the yield farmers, I think Uniswap um, was popularized in 2019. So we're talking a five-year difference. Um, the stuff that I have in mind is significantly more complex, compli- I would say complicated, more capable than the more simplified DeFi apps. But the DeFi apps that are coming out, they started simple because everything starts simple. They're getting much more advanced um, as time goes through. Um, I've uh, had a problem raising capital, believe it or not, um, despite my accomplishments and my inventions and my ideas. And I also ran into uh, problems with regulators. And the regulators thought that my um, applications were something that I didn't think they were. And so we went back and forth. and It was very, very draining. Um, Ended up in litigation, and I ended up giving up. And it was a significant roadblock. So I'm building back from there. What we're doing now is we're taking the IP and we are planning on enforcing it when need be and or licensing it with partners who are um, willing. And we'll start building the advanced DeFi um, apps that I intended and I had in mind back in 2013 and 2014. And basically, you will see better versions of uh, Wall Street Um, and you will see them automated and you see them able to comply with almost any rule of regulation, any sensible, practical rule of regulation. So you'll see. I do like what you know I've seen in terms of growth, but a lot of this stuff um, is not as forward thinking. Like 
it is difficult to eliminate in totality regulation mm -hmm. because they're very, very powerful entities called countries. And they are, I don't want to use, I, I would like to use, the concept is they're ignorant to what's um, being applied, but ignorant has such a negative connotation that I don't want that to be used. But they're panicking and they're panicking for the wrong reasons and in the wrong direction. Okay. It's like panicking when the internet was invented or when the internet was popularized. Okay. The internet has made the world a much, much more efficient place. This dropped costs, it's increased reach, it's you know, almost positives across the board. The blockchain will probably have a more significant effect on the world than the internet did. But that is not what these sovereigns are thinking. They're thinking in terms of digital currency, digital currency, okay? Sovereigns run their economies through control of the currency. They're thinking digital currency, they're getting scared. Digital currency is the tip of the iceberg, right? You focus on digital currency, you're going to miss everything else, okay? Peer-to-peer -peer value transfer without an authoritative third party and without the need for trust at all, which is why you don't need the third party. That's what you focus on. So governments should be pushing this, but most governments um, are supported by their banking system, okay, mm -hmm. and support their banking system. And it's the banking system's going to have a problem because the grand intermediary in finance are banks, okay, and banks take large sums of money as compensation and fees for standing in the middle of two people, okay? And they do it because oftentimes those two people can't find each other, can't trust each other, et cetera, don't have the expertise to exchange. When you take those impediments out, what is the purpose of the bank? Right? It has no purpose, okay? So there's going to be a mad rush to protect the banking system, and we have that now, and we have a misunderstanding of what this technology is. Anybody who um, discusses crypto in terms of cryptocurrency has no idea what they're talking about. So if you listen to most of the pundits and the media, et cetera, almost all of them discuss cryptocurrency. That means they don't know what they're talking about. They have no idea what this is. So you can almost instantaneously discount 90% of the opinion that you hear or more, unless you're talking about a digital currency application. But most of the stuff is not digital currency applications. You know, even adopt the big databases, the big blockchains, they have currency, those currencies are used to pay the fees to use the network. So you build the application and that application has to pay to use the network. Mm -hmm. It's like paying rent, you know, you have an office, I'm assuming you're doing this in a studio, you don't get to use that studio for free, so for free, so you have to pay a fee to use the studio. And that fee is paid in dollars, Bitcoin, F, studio credits, et cetera. But nobody calls the result of your work, which is a podcast, a currency. If they do, then they don't know what they're talking about. So I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here listening to you walk through this. And like what you're talking about is the full displacement of consumer banks, of central banks, and frankly, most attorneys doing contract law, correct? If everything remains status quo. Okay, think of Charles Darwin and evolution. Okay. Um, you have, uh, you have uh, initially, as I was taught, um, the Earth, currently the Earth, I think, is like 72% water. Um, that's before then, let's say the Earth was 93% uh, water, okay? And then some cataclysmic event happened, 
and it forced much of the land mass that was below sea level up to above sea level. So now you have significant land masses, continents. Okay. Those sea creatures who did not adapt, what happened to them? They're gone. They're gone. Those sea creatures that did adapt, what happened to them? They thrive. They're probably a great, 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 great grandma. Okay. So that's what happens. It's not going to eliminate banks and the banking system. It's going to force an evolution. Okay. Those that evolve, survive, likely thrive. Those who don't evolve, simply don't. We die off. So that forced evolution is something that's sorely needed in the banking sector. The banking sector is a place where you have close to no innovation. Can you think of um, a significant innovation, invention, or patent that was useful um, in finance since you've been alive? I'm glad you had it useful. So like there's derivatives, but like they're not useful. There's credit default swaps and CDOs and like they aren't useful at all. So like a useful one? Well, they're useful. They're useful for building a bonus pool. But I'm talking <laughs> about useful for you as a consumer. Uh, maybe the ATM machine. Maybe. Okay. Um, when was the ATM machine? Um, I'm not going to say when it was invented. When was the ATM machine put into proper use? In like the late 80s? Uh, I would say more like the early 80s. Okay. Okay. What's today's year? Uh, <laughs> I know where you're going. It's 2021. Okay. So you're talking the ATM. The ATM was actually invented, I think, in the 60s, the mm -hmm. late 60s, I believe, or early 70s. Okay. But proper use was probably, as I remember it, was somewhere around 1983-ish. Okay. okay. So we're talking 20, 30, close to 40 years. My whole damn life. Yep. My whole life. Okay. Now, now let's compare this to other sectors of the economy. Okay. Um, computers and software. You have the mainframe computer, right? You have the mini computer. So Microsoft, you have IBM mainframes. You have mini, like Sun. You have microcomputers, um, Windows, Microsoft, you have software, uh, graphical interface, Windows from DOS. You have the internet. You have applications on the internet, Facebook, Google, et cetera. You have the blockchain. So we're talking seven major paradigm shifting, major paradigm shifting innovations in the same space that finance, which is probably more pervasive than all those industries, did one. And the ATM is nowhere as powerful a paradigm shift as the internet or the microcomputer. Um, you can come out of um, information technology and go to any other sector, medicine. You have mapping the DNA, the genome. You have gene splicing. You have gene editing. You have cures for many major illnesses. Uh, I can't even think of all, you know, brain surgery, open heart surgery, et cetera. Okay. As a matter of fact, almost every aspect of life has a technology that has been improved at a pace that puts the financial industry to damn shame. Why has that been the case? Because the financial industry is protected by a moat, regulatory, the regulatory bodies. They protected like a rabbit pit bulls, literally, significantly protected. And when you have this level of protection, right, from competitors and to get a license, Right to do business there, you have to have a massive amounts of capital and massive connections. Uh, New York State gave its first banking and trust license in I think 30 years, 
20 or 30 years to uh, uh, crypto companies. One. Okay, think about how many licenses were given to operator internet company. Sure. Oh, yeah, you don't need a license to do that. Or operator software company. You don't need a license to do that. So there's no wonder that that industry has progressed so quickly and it's become so dominant and so pervasive and so useful to society as compared to finance, where you need a license to operate, you need hundreds of millions of dollars to get started, okay? And you have a built-in moat that guarantee no competitors. So life, in terms of using finance and investment, um, is stagnant. You know, we are relatively in the caveman days compared to every other aspect of life. So what um, peer-to-peer technology does, this crypto technology does, is it will eventually force an evolution one way or the other. Now, sovereigns, regulators, countries are fighting tooth and nail, okay? But they work very closely with the banking system. Mm -hmm. But they're doing their, it's like fighting tooth and nail to prevent a cure for cancer. That's basically what it's doing. Now, large sovereigns are starting to catch the hint. China has figured out that this stuff is the best thing since sliced bread, okay? Now, the media is not portraying it that way. They could portray China as anti-crypto, but China is extremely pro-crypto. But what they're doing is they're shutting out the competition. So they are kicking out the Bitcoin miners, they're kicking out um, crypto exchanges, they're kicking out um, much parts, many parts of the industry, and they're forbidding the banking system from providing services to those um, companies in that industry. And what are they doing instead? They're creating their own competitor. So they're creating a public crypto system, okay? And they're pretty much outlawing a private crypto system and they're pushing um, their own brand of crypto and they're doing it very, very, very aggressively um, in time to use it to serve the Olympics to be held in Beijing, okay? Um, China's not the only um, uh, sovereign. I have a strong, there's a strong indication that the US is doing it, even though they're not admitting it. Um, and that's why they're cleaning up shop. Um, Japan, uh, pretty sure London's doing it, even though they may not be admitting it. Um, a lot of them are doing it because they're fearful that China may take the lead. China got the smack in the butt to get going quickly because Facebook scared everybody when they basically made it clear they were attempting to privatize um, currency, the stable coin, something that's been doing way before uh, Facebook made the announcement. The difference is Facebook has billions of customers. And they could turn billions on instantaneously. That's a threat. Okay, so that's it in a nutshell. And it goes it's a bit more complicated in advance, but in a nutshell, that's how I see the world. Okay, and we're not eliminating banks, you're forcing evolution. So what you're going to do is you're going to eliminate banks who don't earn their keep. Hmm. Unfortunately, that's a lot of banks. Now, it's going to be rough because banks have significant gatekeepers uh, and protectors with strong lobbying. So... We have to get through that, and they're going to fight. They're going to fight this cure for cancer by any means necessary. One of the things I like to do toward the end of a lesson is to recap with the students like what they've heard. And so some things that I've heard here in this conversation is, one, that people who are focusing on cryptocurrency are focusing on the wrong thing. The real thing to focus on is the blockchains and the power of, of DeFi. Yes? Yes. So then here's a question for you. So essentially right now you and I are living through a period of transition that's going to play out over the next 20 to 30 years, maybe faster than that because my estimates might not be right. There's lots of blockchain projects out there and lots of, uh, lots of systems being set up. 
who are some of the systems and things that you really believe in and will put money behind? And if you're willing to do so, who's who's just whack? And because the thing is, is these blockchain systems run the gambit from really authentic efforts to build decentralized finance. Like I believe Dogecoin is, I think it's an authentic effort. It started as a joke, but like it's an authentic effort to others that are like clearly Ponzi schemes. Like, and so I'm just wondering, what are some of the projects that you, you believe in and some that you don't? That's a tricky question because the answer (laughs) is going to cause the, uh, the trolls that attack my Twitter feed. That makes sense. Okay. Yep. Um, and I don't like it when they do that. I have very thick skin, but you know, I would like to use my Twitter feed for actual communication. So um, to begin with, remember who you're talking to. Um, the blockchain race has literally just begun. Hmm. Okay. Blockchains in and of themselves, or at least permissionless blockchains um, that solve the Byzantine General's dilemma. It was... The concept was created and announced in 2008 with the white paper. It wasn't implemented to 2009. So you're talking only 12 years ago. Okay. So to put this in perspective, the internet was discovered by DARPA in the DARPA lab in the late 1960s, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. It wasn't popularized to the early to mid 19th. I discovered it in 93. It wasn't popularized between until 1995 to about 1999. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're talking a 30-year spread between invention and the beginning of popular use. And that's just the beginning. It's really kicking the high drive now. So let's suppose that the blockchain um, is a more significant um, opportunity or paradigm shift than the internet and that we are more of a digital society, so things would move faster. So let's say we move 100% faster. So instead of 30 years, it's 15 years, okay? So that means we have another four years to go before things really start kicking off. Hmm. Now, I think the blockchain is gonna get adapted faster than the internet because society as a whole, at least in developed nations, but probably around the world, is they're more digital now than they were before, okay? But I'm just using these comparisons, these timeline comparisons to put things in perspective. So picking a, a leader or a winner in the blockchain space is just it's just much too early. You know, Ethereum has the lead because they came out first um, with a, enough capital to build, a, to build the infrastructure. Um, they have a lot of growing pains, a lot of them, but they are looking to launch a 2.0 very, very soon. How successful it is, it will not be. We don't know. They have a lot of competitors, Cardano, Neo, um, Hashgraph, et cetera. You know, how successful they will be, I don't know. And I don't think it's worth the gamble. Um, in our rebirth, we're focusing on the IP. We're focusing on the devices, the methods, and the systems of getting all this stuff to work. Okay? That way, it doesn't matter what blockchain wins. It doesn't matter what currency is used. It doesn't even matter what regulation um, is passed on, whether they outlaw Bitcoin, whether they outlaw public exchanges, whether you have to KYC for everything or nothing. It's irrelevant because we're focusing on the application of the technology itself, not even applications, but the application of the technology. That is the most sure bet. That's where I'm putting my resources. And um, that's the way to go. Others in the space who were like-minded, who thought like me, 
put a lot of energy into um, patenting ideas in 2014 and 2015. Now, everybody's doing it. You call a patent office in any major economy. You know, the EU, EPO, um, Japan, China, the US, South Korea, they'll all say that they're inundated with blockchain app, um, patent applications. Eight years ago, seven years ago, you know, they got maybe three or four a year, a dozen max. So we were very early. And if I had to pick the category, I would pick the category we're working on. Um, the obvious leader in the blockchain space would be Ethereum, okay, because um, of wide adoption on this public chain and very wide adoption on the private chains as well. It's been forked and it's being used by R3 and Quarter and Accenture and Microsoft and IBM. So, you know, they have the um, first comer advantage, uh, the leader's advantage. They shouldn't because Bitcoin was the first comer, mm -hmm. uh, but it lost its way and it lost its way relatively early on. Uh, Reggie, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. This has been illuminating for both Doug and I. Uh, you can't see us, but we're looking across the glass, nodding a ton, a ton. Uh, I would love to have you back on the show in the future. I think the response from my audience is going to be great on this. And uh, I would like to pick your brain again in the future. If people okay. if people out there want to follow you online, where should they look? Um, I am active on Twitter, at Reggie Middleton. Um, I, my... Um, Assets I have a Telegram, a public community-run Telegram group. It's called uh, Veritasium Official, and it's on Telegram. So if you do a search for Veritasium Official on Telegram, you see the Telegram group. You get to see the community go back and forth. Thank you again so much for spending this time with us. Uh, Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your hands. If you're not vaccinated, what are you doing with your life? Uh, and convict the police that killed Manuelos. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Sorry, I was just confessing to Doug about my Dogecoin purpose, purchase, so all right. <laughs> Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.